0: All right, so uh, we missed a week, but now we're getting back into Revelation. We're getting towards the end, uh, so we're going to be in Chapter 16 today. Uh, we're going to try and finish Chapter 16, do 17, and then briefly look at Chapter 18. And really, once you get to 19 to the end, uh, that, that's kind of the final section there. So we're kind of at the end of the middle, basically. Um, and so uh, we've been, we're in the middle of this third cycle uh, we've had, uh, of the bowls right we have the seals and uh, now finally we're at the bowls and what we've seen so far with these uh you saw this where we ended in verse 11 of chapter 16 last time is that people don't repent when there's all these sort of calamity and and, and terrible things like this right so that's again one of these clues that what god is ultimately doing is is bigger than just uh destruction even though as we're seeing it's very clear when there's horrible injustice God needs to address that somehow. That itself is also an act of love. Uh, so let's uh, just pick up in verse 12 here. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Armageddon. which is the fun topic, as always. So verse 12, chapter 16. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up in order to repair the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet these are the demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of god the almighty see i'm coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake in his clothes not going about naked and exposed to shame and they assembled them at the place that in hebrew is called armageddon seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake such as not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. Right, so first we have this, this image of Armageddon. Um, now, so uh, this is a term from uh, you know, their context. We want to think about our context first. So if someone were saying, they were talking about you know, current events or, or something that was happening and said, man, this is just like another 9-11 or well, yeah, this was really his Waterloo. Um, what are they saying? Why are you using uh, famous events or battles like that? What's the point of using those sort of comparisons? It
1: saves time. You okay. can tell somebody Waterloo, everyone brings in all the detail and you should have a rough idea of what, what they mean and what happened. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, uh, with Napoleon, right. I, I probably should know more about Waterloo, right? That's where he lost, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just a way of, of saying, yeah, this is a, a big defeat for that person, okay? So it saves time, because it's the shared cultural memory, right? Um, that one's a little before our time, but especially something like 9/11, right? Uh, I think most all of us lived through that. I don't know, care. Maybe that was <laughs> before your time. Okay, awesome. Um, but yeah, for most, most, a lot of people living today, you can say, yeah, it's just man, it's like it feels like 9/11. I we remember how that felt. What else? Why do we use uh, you know imagery like that? Phrases like that. Why would you talk about ancient battles or? Um, Pearl Harbor, right? That could be another example. Maybe some of you remember that. Are we saying that it's the exact same thing happening again? No, it's it's kind of, it's like that, right? Maybe it felt like that, uh, right? That sense of, man, our world just feels upside down, right? Uh, if you live through any of those traumatic events. And so that's how I think Armageddon functions here. It's a word that's it's kind of like apocalypse. It's in our our, our our language, our vocabulary is a world ending disaster. But we want to start with how did that word Armageddon function in the Jewish and Christian mindset and memory? Uh, so on your handout, you can see a lot of verses here, references. Uh, we don't need, need to take the time to look at them uh, just because time is short. But you can go look at there and, and Armageddon uh, uh, is referenced many times. So har uh, it actually has an H uh, in some translations, is just a Hebrew word that means the mountain or hill of Megiddo. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And then uh, it, it's, it's a hill that overlooked a field where many battles were fought uh, in uh, Old Testament times. Uh, and also there's something called the Jezreel Valley, that's the field where those battles would happen. So whenever you find in the Old Testament references to Megiddo, or uh, Jezreel that's talking about the same area. And this is a significant place of battles for uh, for Israel. Uh, King Josiah from the book of Kings, he was defeated and killed there. Uh, so that was a, a traumatic thing in their history and there were several other battles. So again, if John is writing to, we think mostly Jewish Christians, they would understand what he's talking about when he says Armageddon, uh, that it's, it's just pulling up this this ancient battle that, that even if they didn't live through it, they they know what it means. And so Revelation is saying that this is what's going to happen again. And it's a battle here between uh, the kings of the east, who are mentioned in verse 12, and the kings of the whole earth. And that may sound like those would overlap, but uh, the kings of the whole world, whole earth, is probably a reference to the Roman empire, because that's how they would talk about themselves. They would say they, you know, control the kingdom spreads over the whole World, but there were other kingdoms even at that time, and so there are eastern powers like the Parthians who were always kind of a threat. And we mentioned before this this urban legend. Uh, some I don't know how widespread it was, but there was a belief that eventually uh, the Emperor Nero was going to come back from the dead, uh, or he didn't really die; he just he faked it, and he's going to lead this army against Rome. Uh, that could be these Parthians, and whether or not right, that didn't actually happen, but this was something that was in the air and it's possible that John is picking up on that. Uh, and the bigger picture is it points to the way that God can use pagan empires uh, as a source of divine judgment. Right? You see that through the Old Testament that uh, God is using Babylon to possibly punish Israel or to def- or Persia then comes along uh, after Babylon. Uh, it's not that God thinks that those empires are great and uh, it supports everything they're doing, but God can use that for God's own purposes. And so I think that's the same sort of picture here. What's interesting is there's not a a mention of a divine or angelic army here. Um, We saw the Lamb's Army in a previous chapter, but it didn't mention them fighting and they're not brought back into this scene. And in fact, there is no battle, right? It says they assemble at Armageddon in 16, and then uh, the next thing it says, there's a voice from the throne, which is usually God, saying, hey, it's done, right? Uh, so now when we get to chapter 19, we could argue that it picks up this battle there, but it's always hard to tell whether you know these symbols or images uh, are meant to flow together or kind of function independently. So at least here, though, we don't actually see any fighting. It's just kind of setting all these things up. Um, and so, really, all the images of these, these bowls here, including Armageddon, are metaphors for evil's defeat. Um, right? Again, it's, it's symbolic. It talks about islands running away and you can't find the mountains anymore. Right? We, we, take, we understand that's symbolic language. So, we want to take it all in a similar way and still take it seriously. Uh, and I think it's something that, that we'll talk about more in a minute, maybe pointing to the fact that, that evil tends to be self destructive right? Uh, It's sometimes it's powers from without, but it's also powers from within that that lead to defeat. Uh, But it calls it this, uh, the great day of of the Lord, uh, of the Almighty in verse 14. And so this this day of the Lord, uh, we think of that just as a one-time thing, right? When Jesus returns in the end, as we get to at the end of this book. Uh, But that language is actually used throughout scripture for any time when a nation opposed to God falls, or God's kingdom breaks through, or God does some sort of mighty act. Uh, so I think you have those references there. Right? Those are times when, when Babylon brought a day of the Lord against Israel. Um, it, or it happened to Babylon, sorry, in Isaiah. And then it happens to Jerusalem and Lamentations. That's called a day of the Lord. Even Pentecost, uh, Peter quotes... Um, uh, joel prophet joel and he refers to pentecost as a day of the lord right that was a that was a good thing that wasn't destructive but it's all that language is is not just talking about the final destruction of everything at the end it's kind of those these are like the first fruits of that all pointing to that final time when god will finally make everything right and deal with all the evil um so empires rise right and this is what we're, we're seeing how i'm at least reading revelation is it's focused on rome We'll see that especially in the next chapter, but this is a pattern through history. Empires rise um, and then they fall um, over and over through. They destroy themselves through beastly practice and we can call that God's judgment and God's wrath because that's the way that God has set things up to work. Any, any questions about that, about Armageddon? I didn't have a specific uh, discussion, but just make sure everything is clear there, <laughs> somewhat clear. You can always, with revelation, you're only sort of getting some clarity. All right, well, let's get to chapter 17 uh, with the, the whore of Babylon. So let's read the first six verses to start. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth abominations. And I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. So again, very intense imagery here. And we'll talk about, uh, if that seems a little troubling, we'll we'll talk about that in just a second. So this is pretty clearly another reference to Rome, the Roman Empire. uh, Picking up, uh, it was mentioned back in chapter 14 as well. But again, could be any oppressive empire before or after too. But Rome was the problem in their day, so that's what he's talking about. So if we want to you know separate these symbols a little bit we've had several right you have the beast the false prophet this woman um and and there could be ways they overlap but one way to make them see them as distinct is that the beast is really about rome's authority uh, primarily seen through the caesars or emperors uh, and those are the heads that are sometimes mentioned there uh, with the beast uh, the individual leaders and then the false prophet is really more about the propaganda that uh, elevates Rome or says that the emperor is a god. Um, So that's another force that goes along with it. And then finally, this woman here is Rome the city. Uh, I think it actually says that clearly at the very end of the chapter in verse 18. Yeah, the woman you saw is the great city. So this is Rome itself, um, which is, it rides on the beast, right? She's sitting on the beast, meaning that Rome uh, is established Uh, by this oppressive authority, by what the the horrible things that the Roman Empire is doing. That's what props up this, the city of Rome. And cities throughout scripture are commonly considered feminine. Uh, I think the word for city, I know in Hebrew is is feminine, and maybe in Greek as well. Uh, So Jerusalem was referred to that way. Other cities uh, usually use feminine language like this. And uh, the reason it talks about her as a prostitute is, well, it's a common reference to spiritual unfaithfulness, right? Again, very common in the prophets. Uh, Gary mentioned in Hosea this morning, right? This uh, You can talk about marital unfaithfulness as a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness, right? It's like you're cheating on God when you worship these idols uh, or pagan gods. And so that's what uh, that's why describing her in this way, because that's what she's doing and encouraging uh, some of these Christians to kind of give in, right? Well, it's not a big deal. Just, you know, just come along, do what we're doing, uh, make these little sacrifices. Not a big deal. Uh, John is trying to say, no, this is what that actually is. If you're doing that, you're participating in this kind of fornication, so to speak. Uh, and it's not just John who personifies the city of Rome. Uh, the Romans themselves uh, talked about the uh, Roma, Uh, a goddess who personified the empire, right? So you find plenty of songs and poems talking about how beautiful Roma is. Uh, It's decorated with all these finest jewels, talking about, again, all the riches of the Roman empire. And so John in Revelation is flipping that story and saying, no, she's not this beautiful lady. She's just a prostitute. And here's what she's actually done to get all of her gold, right? Uh, The reason that Rome has so much is because they've stolen it from their oppressive injustice and from their unjust wars. Uh, so it's, again, it's, it's a powerful, uh, kind of shocking image and maybe intentionally so, right? Uh, it, so again, I don't wanna push this too far and upset us now but right, you could imagine in uh, someone today saying something about Lady Liberty and making similar comparisons and how upset that might make a lot of us. So that's that's the effect here but uh, what i don't know is this prostitute imagery is it problematic is it overly offensive is it meant to be offensive is that necessary um what do you think about using imagery like that i i don't love saying the phrase whore of babylon a whole lot but but there it is so uh how do you understand the intent of that here's a question more to the women of if you think this is more problematic? I don't know.
1: Okay. Well, just the nature of the prostitution relationship is kind of well, I think we would call it a sellout today so maybe mm. the idea isn't so much oh you're engaging in some kind of sexual practice maybe it's you're a sellout I think mm. might be the, the words we would use today whereas you know if you if you give yourself over to, well, I'm gonna compromise my I'm gonna compromise what I think really ought to be done for the sake of some gold or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm I'm gonna idolatrize my nation or Rome or whatever, and I'm, I'm selling out. So I'm giving up what I what is right to take a hold of something that is wrong because well money, I'm yeah. getting <laughs> right. okay. I, I think that's maybe the imagery they're going for.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it, yeah, how you understand prostitution, right? That, that factors into this, right? And it is, even in their day, sex workers were often slaves. And so, you know, don't just picture that, you know, you don't wanna make this analogy of, oh, this is just how women get rich, right? Well, so a lot were forced into it and um, that, that happens today too. So it's, it's, it is complicated imagery, but we're trying to see, yeah, it's, it's meant to shock a little bit to show you may think that you're glorious and beautiful, Rome, but but here's here's how you actually got what you have, and that's a message that no nation or empire wants to hear. But sometimes, uh, especially in prophetic kind of books like this, a necessary um, uh, reminder. All right, so let's pick up here in uh, verse seven, or it's the end of verse six. We're going to talk about this seven-headed beast, and hopefully not not get too stuck in in the weeds. When I saw her, I was greatly amazed, but the angel said to me, why are you amazed? I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be amazed when they see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, also... There are seven kings, of which five have fallen, one is living, the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, is an eighth, but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are united in yielding their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So we have this title, the beast here, as a parody of God's, right? God who was and is and is to come. The beast is, is not, and is going to destruction. Uh, and also, you know, we saw in the last chapter, the kind of the unholy trinity of the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, right? So he's, again, trying to flip this imagery and show this is just a perversion of what is real and what is good. Uh, So here in verse 9, he's talking about these seven heads of of the beast, and he calls for wisdom in verse 9. And that's language you've seen before when it seems like he is trying to give a little bit more of a code. We talked at the very beginning about the difference between a code and a symbol. Right, A symbol can have multiple meanings and apply throughout time. A code is kind of a one-for-one sort of thing, and you have to figure out the key to unlock that code. Generally, that's not what Revelation is doing, but there are a couple times where that seems kind of clear. And so uh, the number of the beast is the other good example of that, right? And again, these in some ways are very clear allusions to Rome. Rome is famously built on seven hills, and he basically just says that straight out. Uh, It says she sits on many waters, which uh, Rome was the center of sea trade, and all roads lead to Rome, as they say. And so that's, again, there's no way that in the first century they wouldn't hear it that way. And it seems, should be pretty obvious to us too. Now, uh, when we get into these, these seven kings, this is where you could, as again, spend a lot of time trying to figure things out. Uh, that's what I've got on the second page of the handout here. This is uh, not my work. This is from uh, adapted from, uh, actually, this study Bible that I've got here, the nearby standard. Um, And so it is, uh, you can try and plenty of scholars have tried to figure out, okay, so he's talking about seven kings, uh, the fifth is is, um, living, or five is fallen and one is living, so that probably means that John is writing during the reign of the sixth one, but he doesn't say here's who is actually the emperor at this point, which would really help us here. And so we're just trying to work out how, what are some different schemes for this, depends where you start, depends if you skip certain ones who only reign for a little bit. Um, and you you can go look at the rest of that later it's not the biggest deal for us uh, because it is really a code about what they're what they're going through and talking about things and it's even possible that when he says there are seven uh, kings or seven heads that's just a sign of completeness right it's a symbolic number not a, a literal number representing all roman emperors so that's certainly possible as well but it could refer to specific ones so uh, there's different possibilities. Uh, I think the, the last one, F, is um, preferable because these are the emperor, it only lists emperors that declared themselves as gods or were declared as gods, which is what really makes them beastly. And the common scholarly consensus is that ro- uh, Revelation was written during the reign of the emperor Domitian because he was one of the emperors that really did a lot of persecuting. Uh, Nero was the main one before him that did a lot of that. And so that makes sense for, for this, uh, for Re- Revelation to be speaking to that time. And it brings in this idea of Nero possibly returning the seventh and the eighth. Again, it's, it's all very confusing. The point is, right? When you start trying to figure out the codes, I don't know, to me that's actually less interesting and that only was meaningful for them. I wanna think about the things that have relevance for them and for us. And I don't see this as important in that way. But again, you can find plenty of other sources that will try and pinpoint who, you know, modern political leaders and use this to figure out, okay, so now we're going to know when Jesus comes because we're living during, you know, the sixth king or this president or this, right? That to me is just a distraction and misses the point of how this book is meant to work. Okay,
1: uh, he also talks about
0: 10 horns. These are probably minor kings in the Roman emperor. Think think about like King Herod and Israel, right? He's a king, but really he's still subservient to the, the bigger empire. Um, and, and they're making war against the lamb, right? That's, that's the picture here. It's Revelation is not uh, the lamb going out and deciding, you know what, I think I wanna destroy all these people. It's look at what the empire is already doing um, and the lamb is in a sense on defense, and yet the lamb still conquers. But how does the lamb conquer? Not in the same manner that the empire does, not, not using the beast methods. Uh, and that's what makes the lamb truly Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Again, that, that is a, a political statement that was a direct challenge to the leaders at their time to call Jesus Lord of Lords. And um, they knew that was a hard thing to say. They knew that could get them into trouble and yet they were still going to say it and still going to believe it. Okay, Uh, we're running shorter on time, so I know there's a lot there. You can read the handout and look into it a little more, but again, I think uh, it's it's hard to make an exact uh, decision on that, but these are a lot of possibilities. So uh, if if nothing else, I want to wrap up this chapter today, uh, starting in verse 15 of chapter 17. And he is an angel. He said to me, the waters that you saw were the whore is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages the ten horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the whore and they'll make her desolate and naked they'll devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for god has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of god will be fulfilled the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth so right it's making it pretty clear there the woman is the city but it seems strange here, right? We've got the beast fighting against the woman. So you have the, the Roman empire in the sense of the, the emperors and Caesars somehow fighting against Rome itself. Well, why would they do that? Aren't they on the same side? And this it's just showing us the way that evil is self-destructive. Now, can you think of other examples of that? Any uh, throughout history, other empires or nations where it was just infighting that ultimately led to its collapse? or to great catastrophes. Other examples of that through history. Nations kind of just defeat themselves or hurt themselves.
1: Well, Rome itself, traditionally the big argument has been port, brought it out from inside and taken over.
0: Yeah, right. The, these, there were other foreign powers that it, it, that led to Rome's demise but it wouldn't have happened if they had been unified and together, right? Um, I mean, it didn't end our nation, but the civil war in America is still considered the bloodiest conflict that that we've had, right? And Abraham Lincoln famously quoted Jesus, a nation divided against itself can't stand, a house divided against itself can't stand. And so I think Revelation here is pointing towards that same reality of, you know, the empire is going to end up destroying Rome itself. And, you know, he talks about them burning her up with fire. Well, Nero literally did burn Rome. Uh, which is uh, a, a big memory there, right? Because what do you do? He blamed that on the Christians. So it's the, the emperors uh, hurting their own empire. And yet what do they do? They blame uh, the faithful ones. And so you can see why John wants to speak to that. Yeah, this is just what they're going to do. But eventually they defeat themselves. Now they cause a lot of problems along the way and we want to do what we can to address that. We don't just sit around and wait for that to happen. But we acknowledge that it's going to be their, their own fault that it happens. But it's actually not just their fault, he's saying. It's actually God. Um, he says God has put it in their hearts to do this. So it's, again, that same idea that um, you know, God can use um, an empire that's evil to bring judgment. And then that empire is still judged as well. Uh, so this is all part of how God is working. through all well, It's kind of letting them uh, run their own course in a sense. Uh, God gives authority as uh, Paul says in Romans 13 and part of that authority can sometimes mean those beasts destroy themselves using that authority God gives them and that's a way that God is working providentially through these sort of things to defeat evil uh, even if we also hope that there comes a day when God directly is more involved and I think that's where the end of the book is pointing a little bit more um, but again you see these these nations, they never last forever these massive empires and still the city may remain right you can still go visit Rome and see some of the buildings. Uh, but it's not what it once was uh, the British used to you know the sun used to never set on the British Empire and now it's, it's just one country that's fighting amongst itself right and and we face division in our own country and that's the, one of the reasons we need to, to work on that because yeah it's not going to be just some other nation that comes and destroys us it's going to be if we aren't unified on what matters most to us. Um, all right. Well, I don't know if we're supposed to be done. Uh, I've still, it still seems like it's been unclear on that. Sometimes they ring the bell and sometimes they don't. Uh, I don't see anyone coming out. Uh, really quick then, uh, if we just have a couple more minutes, uh, I just wanna talk about chapter 18. This is a song against Babylon, uh, modeled on the style of prophetic taunt songs against strong empires. Again, they they reap what they sow. That's um, verse six rendered to her as she herself has rendered um so it's the same that's the pattern here um they did this and so they bring it back on themselves and that's justice uh, a lot of metaphors again of being drunk off the state's violence and sexual immorality now uh, that we've seen before uh, a slightly newer thing we haven't seen as much is it also talks about the merchants they're a character in this song that are that are Upset their mourning, uh, verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, for Rome, uh, for the woman, since no one buys their cargo anymore. So it's this luxury that they have, these merchants, right? It's not everybody that's rich, but some are, and it's often based on oppression. Uh, In verse 13, right, 12 and 13, it lists all these things that they're selling. And then he ends uh, with slaves and human lives or human bodies and souls, another way to read that. So right, it's, it's profiting based on selling people at at some level, and so that's what they mourn. They mourn the loss of wealth, not the bloodshed, and, and not these things. So right, there's there's an economic side to all this as well, because that's again how nations are, uh, how empires can build themselves up. And are they should are they mourning what they should? Do we mourn what we should when uh, these things these things happen? Uh, so if you want, you can go and read through that whole chapter. It's just, uh, again, talking about the fall of, of Babylon here. But well, what are we instructed to do? Verse four, hear another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, so that you do not share in her plagues. It's kind of this question, right? Well, what does that look like? It doesn't, uh, as he's saying, all right, well, go move somewhere else and live somewhere that's not in the Roman Empire. That's going to be pretty hard. And where are you going to go? Uh, and in some sense, every nation is, is not what it's meant to be. It's fallen in some sense, hopefully not to this extent. So what does it look like for us to come out of, of Babylon, so to speak? You know, it's the, I mean, the, the tri-phrase is in the world, but not of the world. And I think that's, that's essentially what it's talking about here. But where do we really see ourselves? And um, in what sense do we have a dual citizenship as Americans and as Christians and, what, and how do those fit together, right? It's complicated in a very different way now than it was complicated for these Roman Christians, right? They, they didn't choose uh, this in the same way. They didn't have the voice that we have to influence things. And so that makes it all complicated, but I think that instruction still rings true to come out of Babylon, to identify what is Babylon and what is not, and how can we steer in other directions? All right, so now we are clearly done. So <laughs> I'll let you go, thanks.